Welcome to Invoking Witchcraft, the podcast where the sacred and profane come out to play. So call the quarters and set the round. It's time for another episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Invoking Witchcraft. I am one of your co-hosts, Jay Allen Cross, also known as at Oregon Woodwitch on Instagram. And of course, I am here with... Britton Boyd, also known as Archaic Honey on the Instagrams. Hello, everyone. And how are you, Jay? I am actually doing pretty good today. You know, it's actually... It's getting a little bit cooler here. It's feeling a little bit more like fall. Um, I... <laughs> We've ran into this thing, though, where a lot of people around in my area are like, wow, the leaves are turning so early. And I'm like, that's because of the drought and the (laughs) heat wave conditions. They're all actually dying. Um, But I don't have the heart to tell them that. But it looks like fall. And so I'm going to just pretend. (laughs) Yes, it does. It does look and feel like fall. It's definitely starting to happen out here. We have these really cool trees called larches. And they're a conifer, but they drop their needles and they start to turn bright yellow. Uh, It's really, really cool to see. So um, they're starting to turn a little bit and it feels early. It's like everything came early this year and hopefully we have a good snow year. Yeah. I I was wondering about that too, if that would mean snow, because everything has hit real early because we're not even in September yet. And we've already dipped down into like the 70s over here. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. How have you been? What have you been up to? You know, I've been working a lot on perfumes. And right now I smell like tea. I've been working a lot on perfumes and future shop updates with my little shop, Blood Moon Botanica. And I've been doing a lot of ancestor work because, you know, with the seasonal shift happening and feeling early, I feel like the ancestors are starting to stir. So I've been spending a lot of my mornings with my mammal. And we've been sharing a cup of coffee together in the mornings. And I got yelled at recently (laughs) because I made coffee for my mama. And and God bless her. She's staring right at me right now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I made coffee for her and I got distracted on my phone. So I was standing in the kitchen and the coffee was getting colder and colder. And I just, you know, grabbed the coffee, set it in front of her photograph. And then I just got this jolt of like, Girl, I better see steam coming off that coffee. So I was like, oh, shit. And I was like, okay, let me run to the microwave. And I heated it up. And there was the steam coming up off the coffee. And uh, she was much happier after that. So I've learned my lesson. Hot coffee for the mammal. Oh, yeah. You don't you don't fucks with the mammal. She will. She'll get after you. Mine have been feeling similarly. Um. I, I don't know. They, they feel more solid um, towards this time of year a little bit more. So I, I am definitely feeling that. And it's funny too, because not only is like the weather and kind of the, the fall feeling here, but also the, the spirit activity has definitely ramped up. Like you're talking about, um, you know, not only with the mm-hmm. ancestors, I've had several friends who have messaged me and are just kind of like, um, I suddenly have some activity in my home. Like what is happening? And I'm like, it's just this season. Welcome. So we'll get through it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like every season is ancestor season, but they really do tend to pick up this time of year as we make that descent into the darkness of the year. 
They really come alive, I notice. And I'm currently writing about ancestor work in the uh, final chapters of my book. So it feels like perfect timing. I'm just like getting really deep into ancestor work and it feels super good. I love that. That sounds awesome. And the um, the final chapters of your book, how does that feel that <laughs> you're heading in there? Oh my gosh, it's so scary, but it's also a relief. But I know that, you know, when I'm done with the book, it's going to feel really bittersweet because I have built such a lifestyle and ritual around showing up to my laptop and writing every day. So I know I'm going to feel a little heartbroken mm. when I'm done with the book, but I'm, I'm also really excited to be done with it. And I really hope folks enjoy it when it gets published. Yeah, I'm sure that they will. And that's a very normal feeling too. I did have another published person tell me when my book was coming out, they're like, they're like, don't freak out if after you finish with your book or like after it comes out, like you get kind of depressed for a while. They're like, that's really normal. So it's okay. It happens. But that also just means that the best way to fix that is to start working on book two. So I know. I was like, what am I going to do with myself? I'm going to have to write another book and just always be in a writing process. But we'll see. It helps. It helps just keep you sane. If you have something to focus on, then you can just type away and get all of your creativity out. It's really helpful. Mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. So since last episode, I have actually been doing a little bit of research because I know that uh, in the last episode, we kind of ended on this idea of sort of the future of occult publishing and occult books where we brought up things like the algorithm books and while I've I've kind of known about these companies and I've been approached by these companies, um, I hadn't actually gone onto their website or anything mm-hmm. like that. So I decided to do a little sleuthing, see what I could find out um, instead of just being judgy bitches as we are. <laughs> but that is fine. Yeah. We're here to give you the tea. Um, so I'm just going to come out and say it. We haven't been saying the names of the algorithm books because as soon as you say it, everyone gets mad for some reason. Um, but since I'm actually reading off of their website, I might as well say who these people are. Um, so kind of the big one that is responsible for a lot of the algorithm books is a company called Callisto Media. Um, and they have an imprint, which is kind of like um, an offshoot or a, or a sub company that is kind of the a branch of their company, I guess, is what a publishing imprint is. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. called Rock Ridge Press, which is the one that we see a lot of the more occult magical books being put out under. And we were talking last time about how we wanted kind of more transparency in this, because whenever we see these books coming out, they're just kind of, they're put out by like, you know, people with big followings on, you know, Instagram or, or social media. And, but they don't say like, hey, I've written this book, with the help of a data mining company. Uh, and it says, mm-hmm. it says directly on their front page that data mining is, is what they do um, to get this information. So in a lot of the ads for the books, people being like, hey, I have a new book come out. Um, a lot of the times they don't say that this was the process through which it was made. Um, but mm-hmm. the actual website, it says right on the front, it says we combine the power of big data with a capital B, capital D, big data, technology, and lean economics. We discover the information people are searching for and provide it. Um, 
And they again, they say right on their website that it is a data mining company. But what's interesting is they keep talking about the way that they do this is with they are talking about uh, big data technology and lean economics, which they don't mm-hmm. necessarily define what lean economics mean. But in a different area, they talk about um, not not doing any sort of expense that is not helpful to the purchaser of the book. Right. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the people I've talked to um, and what they were talking to me about is as an author, when you sign up to do one of these books, you don't get royalties ongoing. They pay you a flat fee. I think they wanted to give um, like 500 is a number I hear a lot where you write a book, they give you $500 and you put your name on it and walk away essentially is kind of what happens. And they're, they have this whole section um, about their, their credo. That's the obligations that they have to people. One of them is their end customers, their employees, their partners, and their shareholders. But I have noticed that their authors and writers are not included in that, which concerns right. me a touch. Um, because we have to remember this is a, a tech company. This is a, a data mining tech company, not necessarily a a publishing company, even though they are publishing. They are first and foremost a technology data mining company. And, and they're very open about that on their website. What's interesting too is I've talked to several people who have done these books, who who have put these books out. Um, and all of them say very similar things that, you know, even though they do kind of provide you with an outline, um, they pretty much all the ones that I've talked to have said that they had full creative control of what goes into the book. Um, So Mm -hmm. even if they provide them with something that they're like, "Mm, I don't want to put that in the book, they end up just kind of leaving it out and they, they let them do that. They give them a lot of creative control over it, which is good. Um, Especially Mm -hmm. if the person who is doing the writing has a solid background and good information The part that concerns me about that is a lot of the times, because again, this is a tech company that does data mining. So they find out what is popular, including who is popular. So they often approach people based on their following count, their interactions on social media and things like that. And we've learned in the past that just because you have a big active social media platform doesn't mean that you actually know what you're doing. So the fact that they are giving full creative control to people who may or may not have the background and information to do so um, is concerning. Mm-hmm. So I think that is kind of like a pro that, you know, people who know what they're doing don't have to adhere to what they've kind of data mined. Um, but also the fact that that also means that people who have been asked to write books simply based on their follower count also have full creative control. Um, I, I don't know. I, I still have mixed feelings about it, but I do think that this may be the future of publishing because they have been very successful and they are making a lot of yeah. money. Mm-hmm. So that's fascinating. It sounds like just a fast track way to write a book um, rather mm-hmm. than doing it like the, from scratch way where the author, you know, with an acquisitions editor builds the foundational bones of a book. At least that's the process that I have been through. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you pitch it to the publisher and then you edit and et cetera. And then you begin writing the book. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if there's anyone out there who is, wanting to write a book, uh, this could be some good information to have about what kind of publishers to go with and uh, maybe who not to go with and whatnot. Just good, good info. Well, especially if you just want to put out a bunch of books really quickly, that would be a great way to go. Cause I, I did talk to a couple of people who write for Rockridge 
And they said from like beginning to end, it's a six month process to put out a book, which was shocking <laughs> in, in yeah, normal traditional really publishing like Wiser or through Llewellyn. It's about 18 months. And even that seems mm-hmm. too fast because to go through the edits to, you know, fact check everything to do all the things that, you know, you kind of need to do to do it in, in six months is very, very fast. But also a lot of the books that they put out are not very big either. So I think that that mm-hmm. kind of helps um, a little bit, but I would be curious to talk to, um, I don't know, maybe have someone who, who writes for Rockridge or something like that, come on in and tell us about their experience and how it works. Um yeah. Callisto was the one who I originally had the conversation with where I asked them like, okay, what if you want me to put something in the book that I don't like or agree with or feel as dangerous or incorrect? And they stopped <laughs> responding to me um, after that. But then I have received probably 15 emails from Rockridge in the last month. Um, so wow. I, I haven't responded to them because I'm I'm not interested in that kind of publishing, but it is something that I think I think it's here to stay. Um, but I do mm-hmm. think that people need to know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having clarity around that is really valuable. Yeah. I'm really curious to see what happens with occult publishing in the next decade or so. Cause I think we will, we can pretty much guarantee that we're going to see more, um, more of these algorithm books, probably from different companies, more companies that show up doing the same thing. Um, and then the the citing sources in the books, I think is going to be really interesting to see how that works out. Because I do think it is necessary and I do think it is helpful. I don't think you're always going to have an academic um, source that concurs with certain like spell work. But as far as like historical um, and anthropological information, I think that's helpful and necessary. So I'm curious to see what this all looks like in a little bit. Yeah, what I have noticed in the occult publishing realm um, is a trend, yeah, towards smaller books. And um, I'll be honest with you, like, as a reader of occult books, I do appreciate these smaller, like, 140, 175 page books, because mm-hmm. when I get slapped with a giant tome in front of me, I am I kind of just glaze over. <laughs> um, but I really do enjoy the fast reads packed full of information. So I have been appreciating that about recent occult publishing are these um, these books that are filled with info, but are a good fast read. Yeah. And I think that's interesting that you bring that up because a lot of occult publishers. So when I got together with Wiser, they won't take a book that's over 60,000 words for that reason. And I turned in mm-hmm. like, I think on the dot, 60,000 words exactly was like their maximum. Um, but then also my book, a lot of like what the negative review reviews about my book were, was that it was too long, that there was, it was too wordy. Um, so I do think there is something to be said for, for smaller books. I really appreciate it when folks leave reviews for books that are like, this is too wordy. I mean, my goodness, it's a book. It's a full of words. Like There's too many words in this book. Expecting to get? <laughs> it's too much sand on this beach. Right. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, the world of occult publishing is really fascinating. And it's going to be interesting to see how it develops in the next decade or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, you know, I, I really lean into and support those uh, publishers who are doing it the old school way. 
um, and really value the art of, of writing and building a book um, mm-hmm. from scratch. Um, it's a really, now that I'm on the other end of the process, having been a consumer of books and now writing one, it's, you really do get to see the labor of love that goes into book writing processes. It's, it's a piece of your soul <laughs> that's making it onto the pages. Huh. It's so, a commitment for um, sure. That it you, really is. And it's so weird because you, you're not getting paid at all during the writing process. The only time you make money is after the book is published. If people like it, then you make money. So there is very little guarantee in any sort of publishing because you simply have to spend six months to a year writing the thing and then hope that all of your hours and hours of labor amount to anything at the end. So that's always kind right. of the, the gamble, but yeah, we'll mm-hmm. see. We'll see. Yeah. Read your books, y'all read your books. So what are we talking about today? What is our topic of discussion? We have a lovely topic today because I know that we just kind of finished our discernment series, which was kind of heavy, a lot of information, a lot of a lot of things to examine that may or may not have been comfortable <laughs> for some folks. Um, so we are going to, we're going to lighten it up today. And we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, growing up witchy, you know, what were the things that really impacted us as young witches? Um, whether it's like uh, pop culture things, books, TV shows, or um, things that we ran into as children or, or teens that really kind of influenced where we are today. Um, does anything jump out? of just like right away of something that you were like, this had an impact on me as a child. What was it? Yes. Um, it actually popped up for me a few days ago. And then when you and I were talking about this episode and, and kind of like reaching back into our youth and what had um, put a big impression on us was this movie that I watched as a child. Um, I must've been about five years old and I came into the movie in the, in the middle of the movie. I don't even know where I was at because I was five. Um, but what I recall seeing was this baby bear stumbling around in the woods. And then there's the sudden close up of a bunch of Amanita mushrooms. So the Amanita mushroom is your classic red with white dot toadstool looking mushroom. And the little bear eats the mushroom. And then kind of falls asleep and wakes up tripping. And the baby bear is in the forest and is seeing all these like crazy imageries of like frogs jumping around and attacking him and like spider webs and flowers and butterflies flitting about. And I, that was like, is it a cartoon or is it like a live action? It's a live action It is a real baby bear. And, um, so I, that was like one of the first things that had a huge impression on me was like this psychedelic bear experience. And as I got older, I finally kind of unraveled like what that movie was. And it's a movie called The Bear. And I believe it's a French film. And it's a story that follows this baby bear who gets separated from his mother. And it's the adventures of this young bear roaming the woods and you know there's a story to it and everything but that was a a big that movie had a big impact on me 
And a lot of the stuff that impacted me in my youth were very like nature oriented, not even very specifically witchy stuff, mm-hmm. but it was a lot of like nature oriented uh, media and whatnot that influenced me. So the movie, the bear is a very atmospheric movie. It's really silent. It just follows this baby bear around in their adventures and it's a real bear and it's gorgeous. It's set in, um, I believe they actually filmed the movie in the Alps in France, but the location setting is supposed to be like British Columbia. Um, so it has this very misty forest vibe to it. And this sentience and life of the bear and, and the um, nature of the bear was just very impactful on me. And I had a deep connection with bears growing up too. Um, out of, I'm the oldest of six children and, um, I was always gifted stuffed bears, uh, you know, as like a toy in my youth and my brothers and sisters all got blankets. So I was like the odd one out. I always cuddled my bear while my brothers and sisters cuddled their blankets and bears have just been with me forever. So this movie was just like the psychedelic scene in it was really, really cool. So I'm like five years old and learning about psychedelics <laughs> that's so interesting I, I love that because mm-hmm. i i knew that that yours would be so different because it always is and also whenever you say that you're the oldest of six it always blows my mind because i always think of you as such like a a lone wolf kind of person the fact that you would have six siblings that you are like kind of the leader of <laughs> just blows my oh, mind yeah Right. Yeah. My parents uh, began with an Aries and they finished with an Aries. The youngest is a little Aries. And um, oh, she's she's got more of a temper than me, but she's great. Are, are you all really close in age or, or are you real spread out? We're pretty spread out. So there was an eight year gap between me and the second oldest. Um, oh. My sister, Leia, um, which we are going to be talking about Star Wars in this episode. Uh, as influences (laughs) so yeah my sister um she is eight years younger than me so there's a big gap I was kind of a lone wolf for a good portion of my childhood and then then all these kids showed up and I was like what the heck (laughs) who are you why are you here (laughs) go back oh gosh I love that that's hilarious for me there were so many that were so like really impactful for me it was a lot of um movies so one of them, of course, is Hocus Pocus was mm-hmm. a big one for me growing up. That was a big influence on on my witchiness. Cause, and it was so funny because when I found these things, it wasn't like, ooh, I want to be that. It was like, oh, this makes sense. This is what I am. And that used to freak people out. <laughs> um, so like Hocus Pocus was like really, really impactful on me. But also, do you remember... And, we had such different upbringings. Did, did you guys do like the Disney Channel thing when you grew up? Like, did you watch Halloween Town? No. So a thing about me is I grew up without television for uh, a really long time. So I don't know a whole lot about movies and Disney culture, unfortunately. It's it, like Halloween Town was, I, I think Halloween Town was actually not just impactful on me, but I think on an entire generation because it kind of revolves around this girl named Marnie and like, um, they all live this very normal life in kind of the suburbs. What they don't realize is that their mom is from Halloween town and she's a witch, 
but she's trying to raise them as, mm-hmm. as normal kids because she married a mortal and moved to the mortal realm or whatever until their grandma from Halloween Town comes to visit, who's played by um, Debbie Reynolds. And oh, great. so she shows up and is like, oh, BT dubs, y'all are witches. And the, the main character, Marnie, I always had a really deep connection with because she kind of goes on this rant about being like, I'm, she's like, she, she knows deep down that she is different, that she's like, there's something different about me. I'm, I'm not like everybody else. Like I'm, I'm not even sure that I'm a person. And like her family's like, what are you even talking about until she discovers what, what is, what is happening that her family is witches and what's, what's causing that feeling in her is, you know, kind of her magic or the, or that part of herself that really yearns to kind of reconnect with that. And so Mm -hmm. she ends up kind of following her grandma back to Halloween town where the witches and the, wizards and all the stuff live and and it's it's this neat movie you can find it on like um on like the amazon prime or wherever you do your streaming i like to watch it around halloween time because it's it's the best (laughs) i actually so they filmed it in saint helens oregon and so every year they do this big thing like this huge thing you have to buy tickets for it which i didn't realize we tried to go this last year with covid and it was like dead there was like nobody there and we're like, cool, like, can we, like, go in and take pictures with the big pumpkin? Because they, they like, decorate the whole town like it was that way. But when we went this last time, I think it was because COVID, um, like, nothing was decorated in the entire town, just like this one little block was. And they wanted something like 100 bucks for us to go in and take a picture with the pumpkin. And I'm like, no, thank you. I will wave at it from out here. Um, but they have, like, a big thing in Oregon every year for it. And sometimes the girl who plays Marnie comes back and, like, does a speech or whatever about it. That's so cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I love that you and I are going to have very different uh, influences uh, from our youth. It's very different because so much of mine was like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and Mm -hmm. weird movies that, I don't know, my father was a very um, strange man. (laughs) He's a weird, weird dude. Weird dudes. So, and I love that you bring up Star Wars too, because Star Wars is actually very occult, but it's not generally put in that same category. So, so what was your interaction with Star Wars like growing up? So I grew up in a Star Wars family every year around, um, around Halloween, Thanksgiving time, like in the fall season. Um, I don't remember, I don't know if anyone remembers the TV channel USA. Um, that they would always air Star Wars around Thanksgiving time. So it was a huge like family thing for us to watch Star Wars and eat Thanksgiving dinner together. And um, I love that. So so I just like, I know. (laughs) And um, I grew up with this tradition, you know, since I was just a wee little thing. Um, I remember one of my most uh, terrifying experiences watching television was watching the ATAT walkers um, descend upon the rebel scum um, on, uh, I think is the Hoth planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure there's a fan out there who's just like, you got it all wrong. The snowy um, one, right? So was, That's Hoth. Yeah. This, this Hoth, the snow planet. Yes, you are correct. And, um, so, you know, the force and the Jedi culture was, you know, is basically a, a cult, a witch cult to me. Um, and their use of the force and their understanding of the force 
was something that was impressed upon me at quite a young age. So, you know, when I would go out into nature and out into the world, I kind of overlaid that concept of the force and this like spirit in all things. It kind of like started up a an early understanding of animism for me that this force moves through all things. So it was it deeply impressed me as as a young child and I still I still am a huge Star Wars fan. It's it was a really big influence for me. And Lord of the Rings, I have to say, I mean, of course Lord of the Rings is like the most magical, you know, TV or not TV movie and books that there are and has um really shaped the world of occultism, I feel. That one, especially the Lord of the Rings one, was so intensely impactful for me as well. I remember, oh God, how old was I? I was a little kid. Um, But when the first one came out, I remember my dad let me watch it. And I used to pause and back up the scene where Arwen says the spell and then like the wave comes and, and all that stuff. So I copied down that and I remember then running to the bathroom with my little piece of paper with her little spell written on it and filling up the sink with water and saying it, hoping to get like a little horsey wave across in my bathroom sink. (laughs) It did not work, but you know what? I gave it my best shot. Right. I think you have to be an elf for that to work. but. I know there's such great movies. Um, I was in my teens when those movies came out. And yeah, I still I have a tradition every year I go through the whole Star Wars trilogies. And then every year I watch Lord of the Rings. And um, I was it was so embedded in my family um, that I have a sibling named after a Star Wars character, my sister Leia. And then I have a brother who is named after a character from the Cimmerillion, uh, Baron. <laughs> so it's right. I know I, my dad is a huge nerd. He's such a strange man, but um, yeah, that's, those were the things that, uh, that like were influenced upon me as a, as a young one, the star Wars and the Lord of the Rings. I love that this too is it's kind of more of an unorthodox magical introduction too. Cause like, you know, people automatically think is like, Oh, like Harry Potter or something like that. Not necessarily like star Wars as an introduction to witchcraft, but you're right. Especially this entire idea of the force. And they, they kind of describe it in the films too, that like, you know, the force flows through all things. Everything kind of contains it. It's everywhere. You know, this idea of this, this power that is just kind of innately omnipresent. And I think that that is such an important, magical, I guess, concept to understand in order to do this work it is. is that it's it's through everything. And when you get into kind of a lot of the 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 deeper stuff about the force, so if you like really nerd out and go into like the actual like literature and, and Jedi crap, like the the force wasn't just like to move objects around. It was also said that like you know when. Jedi's reached a certain level, like they no longer needed to eat because like the force would just sustain them or, or like, you know, Mm -hmm. if they were underwater or like surrounded by a poison gas, it was fine because they could just like, you know, nourish themselves with the force instead of having to breathe, like sort of a thing. So like the, the intensity of 
what, quote, the force actually was, was so big and so complicated. And that's something that we deal mm-hmm. with, too, in, in the magical world. And so I, I always thought that was super neat. Yeah, I love how they overlay with one another. So did you have any children's books that kind of sent you in that direction? Oh my gosh, yes. I can think of a couple of books, but I don't remember any books from when I was very, very young. But I do remember when I started reading novels and whatnot as, uh, you know, in my preteens and whatnot. A couple of books that were really um, impressionable for me were, um, first off, hands down, My Side of the Mountain was one of my most favorite books. It is about a young boy who runs away from the city and his large family and goes and lives in the mountains and kind of makes his way on his own uh, living in a hollowed out tree. And he has a pet bird, uh, a falcon named Frightful, and they hunt food together and everything. And then another book was Sign of the Beaver um, about a young boy's uh, interactions with uh, indigenous folks and understanding their life ways and whatnot. And then uh, another one was, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. <laughs> uh, for for the witchy influence? Yes, because it was a book of prayer. You know, she in like menstruation. And so this was my first, um, you know, unfortunately, I was not really taught about menstruation. And um, it was something my parents kind of, uh, God bless my parents, I love them very much, but something that I missed out on. And um, because there wasn't really a culture of like, you know, we we really suppress and hide that menstruation Mm -hmm. and the magic of it. Um, But this book really opened me up to that realm. And her prayer to God and her, her conversation with God made me realize that I can be in conversation with God, that I didn't need a middleman between me and God and my higher power to communicate. Um, So that was a book that really impressed me. Um, Yeah, I know they're not very specifically witchy, but it's this, this, this land-based influence and this like spirit of place and connecting to the land and then the prayer that really opened me up to uh, reaching out spiritually to the land and being in, in communication with it. Uh, that influenced me. Mm-hmm. That is so neat. And I never would have thought of that. Are you there? God, it's me, Margaret book being witchy, but you're right. Especially if it's a book of prayer that centers around menstruation, that's very witchy. I would very. have never connected that, but that is, that is true. That's so interesting. And I always, of course, I always flash to the Chelsea Handler version, which is, are you there vodka? It's me, Chelsea. Which is a little different, oh a little different. But, um, yeah. The adult and, version. And the My Side of the Mountain. Okay, so that brought back so many memories because my father actually read that to me when I was a kid um, over the oh, course of so wonderful. many bedtimes, um, went through this book. And what was so funny is someone actually posted the other day on Twitter that was like <laughs> the reading My Side of the Mountain as a kid to earth-based paganism pipeline <laughs> is real. And I'm like, yes, it is. And I, I did, I thought I was the only one, but apparently this is a book that kind of comes up for a, f- a few people when it comes to kind of something that they felt mm-hmm. was kind of innately, you know, not necessarily witchy, but kind of like this nature connection, sort of an idea. 
but the, the question I ask a lot of people, because I don't remember and no one else seems to remember, why was this kid in the wilderness? Did he just, he was just like by society and just like pieced out or like, was there a reason? I can't remember. It's, it's, it's sort of like the boxcar children. I'm like, did your parents die or did you just decide to like be homeless or what happened here? Right. I remember the boxcar children too. Um, but uh, so um, I'm reaching back into the depths of my memory right now. What I remember of Sam Gribley, that is the name of the boy in the book, My Side of the Mountain. He lived with a large family in a small apartment in, I believe, New York City. And he was just so tired of the the culture and the hustle and bustle and the lack of space that he had that he discovered that there was an ancestral uh, homeland or not homeland, but like land space. Yeah. Um, that belonged to his grandfather or great grandfather. And so he packed up like a ball of string and a pocket knife and flint and steel. And I think rode a bus out to this plot of land in the Catskill Mountains of New York and um, just set up a spot out there and burned out a hole in a, in a giant tree and lived in this hole in a tree and, <laughs> and made acorn pancakes and stole um deer from hunters and things like that so it's such a great story and it's such a mood too just like you know do you ever just look around and just like you know what fuck y'all i'm going to the woods (laughs) like i'm out oh yeah that is a huge mood and i oh my gosh i feel that every day oh god that's amazing brings back so many memories and I, i remember too that it was like really detailed in like the actual it it almost kind of acted as a survival guide like it had i remember didn't have like um diagrams of like the traps and stuff in it too it it did it had like it basically gave recipes for like acorn pancakes and um uh what was the other one it was cattail tubers um because he harvested cattail tubers as well and ate those and like it was it was basically a little survival guide. And um, I did make an attempt. I was so influenced by this book. I don't think I've shared this story here before that I create I lived in North Carolina at the time. And uh, I created this whole plan to run away because I was like, I feel you, Sam Gribbley. I'm tired of living in a house <laughs> full of children. <laughs> I, I'm ready to run away. So I got an atlas of the state and I figured out how I could get to the uh, Appalachian Mountains. And um, I gathered up my supplies and I was really, truly getting ready to head out. I think I was about 13 years old and I had it written down. I wrote a plan down and my mom found out (gasps) about it. Yes, big trouble, got in huge trouble. She chucked my my tattered, torn Bible of my side of the mountain into the trash. And I was grounded for like a, two months. And um, I mean, my mom saved my life. That's what yeah, she did. That wouldn't have gone well. But. <laughs> no, it would not have gone well. Would have gotten picked up and who knows, disappeared. So yeah, she was uh, sat down Right. <laughs> oh, my God. So it wasn't until years and years later that I finally fulfilled my my kind of need to be out in the wilderness for long periods of time. So I went and hiked the PCT and that took care of it. <laughs> That'll that's that will definitely scratch that itch for sure. Oh god. Yeah. 
trying to remember too. So books are, so I went to a, a very small school in a very small town. So our library was not extensive, but they did have like a weird kind of horror, scary book section, whatever. Um, that I frequented that had like a book about like the Salem witch trials, which I was very into because I thought that this all went down in Salem, Oregon. Cause I was like seven. Um, and I was like, yes, this is local history. This is <laughs> the witches were from here. And then people were like, no different Salem. Um, I also thought Hocus Pocus took place in Oregon as well. <laughs> but um, there was one book that I loved dearly. And I had a good hardback copy of it. And then in one of my moves, I was downsizing and just decided, you know what, I don't need this book anymore. And I threw it away and I've always regretted it. But this book is called Whistle in the Graveyard. And Mm -hmm. it's just a collection of stories, kind of like the scary stories to tell in the dark, but kind of like an off-brand, kind of lesser known version of that. And it has all these really neat stories of kind of like weird stuff from around the world. There's this one story about um, about this guy who goes into this old hut. I think he's like lost in the woods or something. And he finds like a witch's cottage. And so he, but mm-hmm. he's like, you know, looking for a place to stay for the night. You know, he's hungry. He needs food. And so he goes into this cottage and he's kind of slowly realizing that it's a witch's cottage as he's looking around it. And then this cat comes out and this cat is just meowing just terribly and he mm-hmm. looks down and the cat has no eyes because she oh has taken them and put them in so that while she so that she can see at night while she's out flying and he finds her eyeballs in like a little saucer next to the fire and so he he throws them into the fire and then like leaves or something like that and then the cat is sad forever because then the witch keeps the cat's eyes from that point forward because she doesn't have her eyes anymore. So I'm like, bro, you just screwed this cat. You didn't do anything to the witch. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> but I remember it was it was really impactful for me because a lot of the stories too had directions in them. For mm-hmm. so there was one story about this guy who who met up with this old man who he heard was a witch. And he's like, I want to be a witch too. And so the guy was like, Are you sure? And he's like, Yeah. And he's like, All right, let's do this. And so he goes and he takes him out into his yard and he takes a stick and he draws a circle in the dirt on the ground and he goes, get in the circle. And he's like, okay. And so he goes and he gets in the circle and I don't remember exactly what he has him say, but he's like, repeat this three times. And it's like, devil, take me, devil, take the ring, devil, take everything inside of me. I think it was, was the chant that he was supposed to say three mm-hmm. times in it. And around the third time, as he was coming to like the end of it, the ground inside the ring started to like sink. Like, like he was going oh boy. down in an elevator mm-hmm. Satan and he like freaks out and like scrambles out of it and like runs away and like, you know, never comes back or touches any sort of witchcraft again or whatever. But of course, because it's me 10 minutes later, I'm in my yard with a stick <laughs> asking the devil to yep. take me, um, you know, as <laughs> you do. Um, so that one was a really impactful book for me and if anybody if anybody out there listening to this has a the specifically the hardback purple version of it in good condition contact me i want it 
because that's that's the edition that I can't find is the purple one. And it was oh, I'm so mad that I got rid of it because it was it was in really great condition because nobody checked out this book except for me. And I kept it checked out for an entire year in like the mm-hmm. third grade. And at the end of the year, they just let me take it home because nobody else asked for it. Nobody else wanted it. I just kept it checked out for an entire year, just renewing it. And I carried it around mm-hmm. like it was my spell book and read it every day. Um, so that's, that's Whistle in a Graveyard. And it was, it was a big deal for me. <laughs> that reminds me, you just reminded me of another book that I was obsessed with. And that was an original, the original Brothers Grimm's fairy tales. That was hugely influential on me. And I don't remember all of the uh, stories within it, but I was a little obsessed with like the gory stories of like the kids playing butcher and like the whole family, like that they, the mother would find out and she'd kill all her children. Like these gory stories and whatnot always kind of obsessed me. And I'm not even that much of a horror fan, but the way that they told the stories were, were always very titillating. Um, But that was really influential. And I remember carrying that book around forever. And I don't even remember why my mom had bought the books. Yeah, I was homeschooled. So my mom bought a lot of books for us to to read through. I, because I grew up also very Christian. And I was just like, Mom, like, this (laughs) is really like, not Christian at all. (laughs) Am I allowed to read this? So it felt very like a taboo book in the house for me to read. Yeah. The um the Brothers Grimm's two was weirdly witchy because I'm I'm trying to remember because the Disney version of Cinderella was much different than the oh, Brothers yeah. Grimm version because wasn't it there wasn't a fairy godmother but weren't her like dead family members buried in the backyard and she would go and pray at their graves and then things would happen it was like ancestor I think graveyard so. work right yeah there was a lot of witchy stuff going on in those stories yeah. Mm-hmm. And then did you guys have Streganona? No. Oh my God. Streganona was like, it's for like little, little kids. It's about, it's about a a Strega who is like an an Italian witch. And it's, it's really super cute and it's like lovely. And like, she talks about like a protection charm that she makes, or she has like this magic sort of like pot cauldron thing that just starts, that she just does magic and it just overflows with all this pasta that like, you know, floods everything or whatever. It, it was a great series, and, and a lot of people, I think, have have flashes back to that back in the day of something that really influenced mm-hmm. them early on. Right. Yeah. So there is one thing that's pop culture that I do want to kind of bring up here because I'm sure there's some folks curious about it. Um, were you into Harry Potter? I was very, very into Harry Potter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I was not allowed to watch Harry Potter. So I I missed out on because see, Harry Potter came out when when I was like 11 or 12 or something like Mm -hmm. that, or maybe a little later than that when I was like a teenager. And um, everyone was reading the books and everything. Mm -hmm. They were obsessed. And I was not allowed, but I was allowed to watch Lord of the Rings and read Lord of the Rings. And I was just like, Dad, what's the difference here? <laughs> like there's so much magic in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, but I guess it's that story of good and evil. And my, my father was just like, absolutely not. You are not reading Harry Potter. 
But I know that's a huge influence on a lot of folks. And yes, we are aware of the controversy and whatnot around J.K. Rowling. So yeah, which was very unfortunate. Very, very disappointing. So not not too much of a fan these days. No. Yeah. That was unfortunate because like at first with her initial tweet, I'm like, Oh, okay. I think she just phrased that wrong. And then she like continued to double down on it. And I was like, Oh no, I'm so sorry about that. But for me, like I absolutely adored Harry Potter in the series, but it wasn't something that I saw as like real magic or witchcraft. Like it it wasn't something that I was ever like, Oh, this is something that will influence my practice. It was like, Oh, that's neat. That's Mm -hmm. fun. Um, But it wasn't anything that, that I really like took and and tried to really do it the way that I did with like, um, you know, some stuff out of, you know, Lord of the Rings or or whatever that this seems more Mm -hmm. like the magic that we actually do. Um, right. The world. I'm surprised that your did did your family do a lot of the Chronicles of Narnia? Oh yes. I forgot about Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. We read those. Because mm-hmm. that one has like huge Christian overtones, the, so like they're very kind of the, the accepted uh, fantasy series for a lot of, of Christian upbringings. So I only mm-hmm. read the first one and I really liked it, but I didn't read any of the other ones. Right. Yeah, it's been a really, really long time since I've read the books, and um, there was like a kind of crappy British version of the movies. They did a movie series. And uh, I really, really liked those. Um, they were very good, uh, even though they were kind of like bad. They were still good. <laughs> they were still entertaining, <laughs> right? Well, and in kind of like a similar offshoot, there was um, there was another series. And I don't know how I'm the only one that seems to know about the series, but the the first book and the one that was my favorite is a book called The Book of Three. Mm-hmm. And then the one that most people know is the second book, because I think Disney or, or one of the kind of Disney-like cartoon things made a movie version of kind of the whole series, but they named it after the, the second book, which is The Black Cauldron. Um, oh, yes. Yes, The Black Cauldron. I just got chills. Sorry. Yes, exactly. See, pe- people recognize <laughs> The Black Cauldron, but when I start talking about The Book of Three, I'm, they're like, what are you even talking about? But that was the first book, because it was um, The Book of Three, the Black Cauldron, and then the third was the the Castle of Lur, I think, or the Isle of Lur, mm-hmm. something. Um, but yeah, no, they were they were amazing, and they were very similar to kind of like that Lord of the Ringsy sort of feel, kind of like that Chronicles of Narnia feel. But it was um, weirder, and I really like that. Like the whole mm-hmm. first book, at least, revolves around an, an oracle pig, which is just like a pig on a farm that tells the future. And one day, this pig escapes, and the the main kid person, Taryn, who's like the main character runs after it. Cause this very special pig is his responsibility to look after. And so he goes like running after it through the woods, but then like, you know, evil things want the pig cause the pig is special. So it all weirdly revolves around a pig <laughs> through the whole first book. Mm-hmm. Um, but not just any pig, a psychic pig. And like, there was that psychic octopus pig. that kept predicting the world cup winners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, it's been a long time since I've seen The Black Cauldron, but I'm, you're making me remember of some other movies that were really influential on me was, uh, of course, The Labyrinth, oh, yeah. um, The Secret of Nim, mm-hmm. and The Dark Crystal. Those were big movies for me growing up. 
I now okay, a lot of people are gonna hate me for this. I have never been into the Dark Crystal because number one, freaky puppets scare me, and I'm I'm not into that. And number two, I cannot for the life of me follow what is going on in this. It's it's I, I feel like I need someone to like walk me through like the political situation in this world and everything. But I'm like, I don't know what's happening. It's all just weird. I'm afraid of this puppet. So I'm just gonna like not with the dark crystal. But I, I was a fan of Labyrinth. Oh yes, Labyrinth is so good. And David Bowie is one of my like I put him on my ancestor altar. Yeah, kidding. Not a direct ancestor, but adjacent, you know, part of that lineage. And uh I love David Bowie so much. Such a good movie. I love it. Well, y'all, I hope that this has helped you guys go down memory lane as well to see where your witchiness may have started from or blossomed from or may have been influenced by. Um, So I I hope this has got you thinking about some of your own favorite childhood growing up witchy things. So thank you guys, everybody, for being here. And remember... Do witchcraft. Do it. Support for this podcast comes from our listeners. If you would like to support Invoking Witchcraft with a one-time donation, please go to invokingwitchcraft.com backslash donate. Or if you'd like to become a premium listener, join the coven at invokingwitchcraft.com backslash coven. There you'll get access to our exclusive Facebook group for discussion and connection, as well as access to occasional workshops. We hope to see you there.